You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, uh, I have a podcast a new one that I'd like to recommend to you. It's called Going Through It, and uh, it's a special one because it is made by our friends at MailChimp. MailChimp has been uh, supporting independent podcasts like Longform for years. I very truly believe that podcasting would not be what it is today without MailChimp, and now they got a podcast of their very own. Uh, it's called Going Through It, and it's hosted by Ann Friedman, who has appeared on Longform. She's also the co-host of Call Your Girlfriend, as well as all kinds of other amazing things. And on the show, uh, which was released this week, all 14 episodes are out right now. Ann talks to all these incredible people about moments in their lives, particularly their uh, professional lives, where they came really close to quitting, like right up to the edge, and then didn't. Uh, it features all kinds of fascinating people, including a couple folks who have been on long form, uh, Samin Nosrat, Rebecca Traster, Hillary Clinton, all kinds of interesting people. But go listen to it. Uh, I'm a little biased because I worked on it a little bit, but uh, I believe it to be worth your time. The show is called Going Through It. You can find it wherever you are listening to this podcast, which starts right now. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff and a very special program. Aaron, who's on this special program? Michael Lewis. Uh, Michael Lewis. Did you know that Michael Lewis has a podcast out? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> renowned podcaster. He's on our corner. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, yeah, he has this podcast out. It's called Against the Rules. It's about fairness and the referees both literal referees and the other forms of refereeing and fairness in America and the world really interesting um, both really different and very similar to a lot of the other things he's done uh, very fearless about just going off into some new format and um, pretty open minded about it I would say did you ask him about um, reading ads uh, I you know I didn't actually because the publicist sent me the versions that di it didn't have the uh, ads, and then I heard him reading the ads, and I was like, "Whoa!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was, uh, it was a strange experience to hear Michael Lewis like uh, talk about offer codes. Yeah. And he, every time he said "for free," he'd go like "for free." Yeah, yeah. No, he he, he was slinging it. He uh, he didn't he did not shy away from uh, from selling, and uh, I he actually has done like I, I didn't realize he like in between uh, books, like has written a bunch of screenplays. He's not afraid to go into the, the unknown with his work. So Aaron, if you were someone which you are, who's not shy about yeah. selling things, how would you do that? Well, I predict that after Michael Lewis's next book, he'll probably do an email newsletter, like the way things are going. And uh, he'll probably do it with MailChimp because he's not he's not afraid to sell. And uh, they're a place that you can go and sell. Um, they got like uh, like these landing pages, e-commerce-y kinds of solution. I don't even know what all these words mean, but you can use them all uh, directly integrated with MailChimp. So uh, thanks to MailChimp. And now here's Aaron with Michael Lewis. Welcome, Michael Lewis. Pleasure to be here, I think. You're podcasting. You've uh, you've jumped across the fourth wall into the podcast world. But not 
to the exclusion of other things. Okay. So you just didn't see me the jumps I've been making for the last 20 years. After every book, I've done something other than write a book. I usually write a screenplay. And they just never got made. But I always thought, I've always felt that when a book is done, take a little time off. And it has two effects. One is, I really do think that writers write when they shouldn't write. That you, There are too many books out there already. And like you shouldn't just get in the habit of stringing them together like circus elephants. So take a break. Ask yourself whether you should still be doing this. Give yourself the right not to write another book so that the reason you write another book when you write another book is it's going to be a really good book and the subject's really important rather than you, your publisher just wants you to write another book. So I have to do something with that time. And I can kill so much of it just farting around on my own, but I usually take on some other thing. And the idea this time was to do this because nobody was making the screenplays. Before we get to the podcast, what was it like writing all those screen? Are these screenplays mostly based on your own work? No, oh, uh, none of them, almost none of them. There was maybe one exception, a television show that was based on the blind side. Uh, it was all serious in the sense that people paid for them. I mean, <laughs> they, 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 I was commissioned to do them. Yeah. Maybe five TV pilots and two or three movie scripts. And some of them got pretty close to getting made, but they never got made. And I'm not, I'm not done. I'm still going to, I like, really like doing them. Yeah. And was starting out from the position of someone who had no idea, you know, even how to use the final draft software to learn, actually learning quite a bit about how to do them. Uh, they were getting better, but it was, it was all a break from the day job and what I felt was like a necessary break and a break that in a funny way then informed the day job because the discipline of screenwriting and actually podcasting is some of this too. It, it's such a compressed form. That it makes me more, it would tend to make me more disciplined when I get into the book the next time, like more willing to see what I could lose, what could end up on the cutting room floor, more ruthless with my own stuff. Uh, because that whole, the machinery around the editorial process around a screenplay is ruthless. It's like you're really getting, you're compressing something so tightly. Um, so anyway, this isn't that unusual for me. The only way that is unusual is you're actually seeing the stuff yeah. or listening to the stuff. Yeah. Is it hard for you, like in the case of those screenplays or the case of the podcast, like you're pretty good at what you do, your day job. You're one of the top people at your day job. And I assume that when you shift mediums, you're no you, longer, you lose a little speed yeah, yeah, on yeah, the yeah. fastball there. Yeah, like that, you're, you're, you're going back to be a semi pro. That's true. What, what is that like as, as someone who's been doing it for 20 years? Uh, a useful reminder of my limitations. It's, it's useful. Yeah. It's useful to feel a little struggle. And it's a little insulting sometimes. Yeah. When someone says you've lost your fastball. Yeah. Talking, I, I, I actually think, I think the podcast is, is a full speed, uh, full speed pitch. But. But, but, but it isn't so much that someone says you lost your fastball. It's that they're assuming that even before you start, there's going to be something wrong with what you produce. And it just... The assumption with the books is usually the opposite. Mm. So it's a little different, but it's not, it's all, you know, I just try to avoid being in a rut and I try to create circumstances in my life that encourage each project to feel like it's like me starting all over again. So when I do come back to a book, I am sweaty. You know, I am trying, I am worried that I've lost, you know, that I've lost it. I've got to, you know, I got to work and bring my A game and all the rest. So I'm not coasting. And it's, it's useful. It's uncomfortable. It, it, it would be nice if the work I did that was not book writing or magazine writing moved as seamlessly through the culture as that stuff did. It doesn't. That's all right. Um, I think that there's real benefit in failure. Not too much of it. <laughs> like <laughs> constant failure is not a good thing. Yeah. But but there's real benefit in being reminded that you got to try. So these these palate cleansers between books uh, have been great for that reason. But the podcast has been different because it was clearly going to happen. You know, from the moment I started it, eventually something was going to be put out there. Unlike the screenplays, you never knew. So there was maybe m a bit more fear involved in this because if I screwed up, it was going to be a public screw up. 
I was trying to think of what the pitch for this podcast would have been. Like, what did this podcast look like when it was just in your mind? So it starts as a manila folder in my stack of manila folders beside my desk 10 years ago when I first began to witness the way the umpires at my kids' sporting events were treated. I couldn't believe it, you know. And it's I've never really understood, actually, when fans are screaming at an umpire that they suck or that they're stupid or that they're cheating or that they're rigging the game, or whatever. The fans on the other side never feel like they're the beneficiary of something the umpire did. It's all one way. And in fact, often both groups of fans in the stands of my kids' games would think the umpire was screwing them, which is logically impossible. So it starts with like, why are people attacking this neutral third party the way they're attacking them? Why do we think this behavior is okay? And what, why would anybody do the job? But I didn't know what I was going to do with it. And then I write a series of books that have implications for the refereeing role. One is The Big Short, where it was really clear you could, one way to tell the story of the financial crisis is as a ref crisis. The interface between Wall Street and consumer finance was an unrefereed space. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau didn't exist, really should have existed. It might have prevented some of the problems. The ratings agencies, meant to be a ref of the value of subprime securities, bought by one of the players, and the, the regulators were meant to regulate the banks. I mean, it was a refereeing catastrophe. And I was aware of that. There was a ref story there. Then I write Flash Boys, which is a shocking additional refereeing problem in the financial sector added after the financial crisis, where the stock exchanges, which were meant to referee the transaction between the buyers and the sellers on Wall Street and be in, uh, just a neutral place, essentially sell themselves to the high-frequency traders, one of the players in the marketplace, and you know go from being utilities to the most profitable corporations in America, the refs. And nobody thinks that's wrong. Uh, and then the Undoing Project about these Israeli psychologists who basically come to the conclusion that human beings are incapable of making systematically wise judgments, that they, our minds are screwed up in so many ways. And this has implications for anybody who's in the position of making judgments or making decisions like a referee. So stuff starts to pile up. Isn't the fifth risk also about like uh, yes, about, authorities who are being pushed out of their the, job? It's the whole, the, well, it's the attack on the regulatory state, yeah, right? Yeah. But the podcast was already in the works. Okay. Or kind of it started around. They're kind the, of overlapping. They overlap. You referenced the address in the podcast. And they yeah. overlap because the real impetus was my friend Jacob Weisberg, who was at Slate, but then created with Malcolm Gladwell Pushkin Industries. When he and Malcolm first cooked up revisionist history with Malcolm, he was saying to me, I should do this. And Malcolm's a friend, and I would talk to Malcolm about it. Malcolm says, you don't have any idea how much fun you're going to have if you do this. And I kept asking questions like how much work it is. And Malcolm kept saying things like, oh, it's no work. It's amazingly, it's amazing how little work it is. So I thought that's what I'll do. Instead of writing the screenplay next time, I'll try, I'll do the podcast. And Jacob and I were out on a long hike. And I said, you know, I've been thinking about, could we do something about these umpires? Could we do something about refs in, in American life? And it, over the course of maybe four hours on a hiking trail, they were kind of like the basic idea for the podcast was hashed out. And the question was, what would the episodes be? That kind of thing. So they lied. They really lied. It yeah. was not, it is not, you probably know, it's not a trivial amount of work to do this kind of podcast. If you're just sitting there shooting the shit with somebody, yeah. that's one kind this of podcast. This is the easy kind of this podcast. This is the easy kind of podcast. But to actually get essentially what this is, is seven long magazine pieces. That's what it feels like. And a long magazine piece takes me a couple of months. And when you've got to haul around equipment and make sure you get everything on tape, and I mean, it was pain in the ass and i was in too deep to stop by the time i realized this was going to consume my life for six or eight months which is what it did um maybe a little bit more than that and and i was irritated for a period of time but got over it because the other truth is it was really fun and it was really fun to do and it was really fun to do because almost all my other writing feels like an individual sport it feels like i'm alone in this I have editors who I really like, but they come in late in the process, kind of on my own. And this was, from the beginning, you got this team of people who know much more about the form than I do. I mean, I still don't know how to work the various machinery. You know, I, I still don't take my own interviews. 
they gave me a recorder, on a, you know, pretty fancy recording machine, and I lost it. I don't know how I lost it. I think they took it back secretly, but they they say that I lost it. You got fired from your own production. I basically got fired from my own production. Right, that's right. But just, but also in the storytelling, they were just really helpful in teaching me how to things about structure, teaching me what I could lose, teaching me where it, like the sound was so bad we really can't use this. It was one thing after another, but it was fun doing it with a group of people. It was just that was just fun. And the other fun thing is the possibility. I don't know if it's going to happen that you reach a different kind of audience. That I think the podcast listener. There's overlap with the book with my book reader, but it's overlap. It's not the same group. Yeah, I was curious about like that sense of an audience. Like, is your audience like Moneyball, but 15 years older now, or like new people it's finding kind of all over the place? The yeah. audience it's, it's stitched together because each the books are about such different subjects. So the Undoing Project got me a big audience in academia. It's this great romance and drama about two academics. So professors read the book and, who've never read anything else I've written. Moneyball got me a sports audience that I didn't have before. The book I wrote about parenting uh, got me a whole different crowd. Uh, so, the, I mean, if, if you had to generalize about my reader, it's if you had to like put a face to the person who's buying my book, it's probably someone in his mid thirties who works at Goldman Sachs. But, but, but you can't generalize. There are a lot of different kind of people who read the books, and that's what's a nice thing about being an author. But in this case, so here's what might happen with the podcast that wouldn't happen with the books. One of my children will listen to it. None of my children have ever opened as so much as cracked book of mine. One exception, my oldest, who's now a freshman in college, had reasons to read The Undoing Project. But I kind of made her. Uh, and You seem unsure if she even actually read, she read it, it, too. She read it. She read it. But, but I've written... I don't know many books, 15 books, whatever, how many books. I have three children. That's 45 possibilities that one child might have, you know, yeah. voluntarily picked. And one of the books is about them. And they still they haven't read that book. So I'm pretty sure there's a chance I'll go to my grave with the sense that my children have never read a thing I've written. But my 12-year-old insisted on listening to episodes one and seven, which he happens to be in, but nevertheless, the rough cuts of that. And was mesmerized, like really listened to it, really understood it, wanted to talk about it. And I have a feeling that my daughters are going to listen to it too. So it's reached already. I know, I think it's reaching three people who you would think I'd already have as an audience who I didn't have as an audience. Oddly, on the other end, my mother is 81 years old and it doesn't play like an 81 year old. She plays like a 50 year old. She works and she's smart and she's, Got her fingers in everything going on in New Orleans. But I don't know if my mother has ever read one of my books. She knows what they're about. She likes the movies. But she might listen to the podcast. So I just think, I think I'm going to get to people I don't normally get to. And, and I think you get to them in a different way. I don't know what your experience with this is, but Mal what I've learned from Malcolm is that the relationship between the podcast listener and the podcaster is different from the relationship between the reader and the writer. It's a warmer relationship that people would come up to him, I think, about his books and tell him how much he liked his books. People come up to him about his podcast and want to hug him. That's Get been very much my experience. Is that right? People will come up and, I mean, we did long form for two or three years before we started the podcast. I've never heard from anyone. People will come up and say, oh, how's your back doing? <laughs> I'll be like, that was a, you know, a year ago that I was talking about like having a herniated disc and one introduction to one podcast. There is a power to hearing someone's voice. Yeah. And it's also true of the characters. There's a power to hearing the voice of the character. It's just different from reading quotes from the character, no matter how well that character is described. The it triggers things in the imagination. There's something about the voice. You hear integrity. You hear slipperiness. You hear nervousness. You, you hear a lot. You pick up a lot listening to just the voice. And people this feel, I think they feel they know you. So that's an interesting experience. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put things on hold for just a second and let you know that our show today is supported by Green Chef. 
Green Chef is a USDA certified organic company with meal plan options that really run the gamut of any diet you could possibly be on. And I love that about Green Chef because I am a sucker for a new diet, 100% sucker for a new diet. I've tried them all. And here's what uh, you can get at Green Chef, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, Mediterranean, heart smart, lean and clean, keto, gluten-free, omnivore. However you're eating these days, Green Chef has you covered. And it's not just that you're going to eat well and discover new recipes every week that you'll love to cook. You can enjoy clean ingredients that you can trust. They're seasonally sourced for peak freshness and recipes are quick and easy. Step-by-step instructions, chef tips, photos to guide you along. It's super easy to cook and there's even pre-made measured sauces, dressings, and spices so you can get more flavor in less time. I am feeling uh, quite full as I read this because I had a fabulous dinner last night. Thanks to Green Chef, I had the uh, Vietnamese spiced meatballs, little pickled carrots in there, little uh, radish, cabbage, shiitakes. It was delicious and paleo, which is my current fad diet. Anyway, go check it out. Green Chef. You'll get 50 bucks off your first box when you go to greenchef.us slash longform. That's greenchef.us slash longform for 50 bucks off your first box from Green Chef. Get some great food. Indulge your uh, diet of the month. They got you covered. Let's get back to Aaron and Michael Lewis. For you, when you hear your own voice, when you listen back to one of these, like as someone who's had this writerly sentence voice all the time, and now you're having to speak these lines aloud, what was that transition like? Well, there are two things about the transition. One is, so this is all, it's all scripted. I mean, every now and then there's like improv in the middle of the thing in the studio, but it starts with a script and the script, in writing the script, you learn that no matter how conversational a writer you think you are you're actually not writing conversation. That you, If I were to go in and read from one of my books, it sounds like someone reading a book, even though I'm a pretty conversational writer. Writing a script for a podcast, you're writing, you're supposed to, you need to sound the way you sound when you speak. And getting turning that into prose on the page is a different thing. It, took, it didn't take long, but it took a little bit. When I listened to it, I've heard my voice enough on tape. I mean, of course, everybody, when they hear their voice on tape, thinks it's not them. My son, when he heard his voice, said, I don't sound like that. He said what he says, I don't sound like that anymore, but he sounds exactly like that. So it's an alien experience and I didn't, I never particularly liked it. I never liked like sitting around listening to myself. In listening to the podcast, I had to listen to myself so much that I stopped. It no longer became personal. I'm listening for, is that working? Is that not? One of the fun, it's a funny thing when you, when you are reading or when you're, it actually feels like performing. When you're performing the podcast, you quickly learn that any given sentence can be performed about 20 different ways. We gave an actor for part of the podcast. We didn't end up using this. We ended up using someone else doing it. We gave an actor a passage from the Old Testament, the Judgment of Solomon passage, and asked him to do different versions of, you know, what was a paragraph of text. And he generated 30 different versions. And each one was distinctly different from the others in in what he was emphasizing in the sentence, the word he was emphasizing, the tone of the voice, whether he was going down at the end of sentences or going up at the end of sentences. And when you're moving through life, you don't really think of that. You're just talking, right? Things are just not, you're using your voice, you're not using your voice as an instrument. You start to have to use your voice as an instrument. And so when I listen, I started to listen. Did I use my voice properly? I mean, I'm a total amateur. So, I mean, like, it was like I was playing the, clar- the, the tonette, not the, not the flute. Uh, but I was listening for how I might improve the instrument. And it's kind of cool. I mean, it's like a new thing. I don't know if it's going to have any effect on how I actually write when I go write again for readers, but it was, a, it was different. In trying to convey these moments as you're telling these stories through audio, what was different about capturing these people, often who you're trying to take pretty complicated ideas that they have and get them down as one third of one episode? Yeah. Um, one of the simple truths, I think, of this medium is you, you can't indulge in the same level of complexity that you can in the printed word. 
I think you can get away with much, explaining much more complicated things in a much more complicated way when someone is reading it. I think it's partly because they can pace themselves. They can stop. They can reread a sentence. They can go back over it and they can slow down if they need to slow down. But I was thinking as I was making the podcast, if I had to try to explain collateralized debt obligations in the podcast, could I do it? And I think it would be very hard, much harder than doing it in print. And it was hard in print. Yeah. So taking really complicated stuff is probably not the strength of the podcast. However, there's a bunch of social science strung through the podcast. And there is something, it's much more digestible if you can, rather than me describing, I don't know, let's take an example. Justin Wolfers uh, in the first episode, he's a behavioral economist at Michigan who did a study about racial bias in NBA referees. If I were writing about his paper, it wouldn't be nearly as interesting as hearing him in a highly edited version talk about his paper. His voice is interesting. He's Australian, so he has a funny accent. And you can hear just how he feels about his paper when he's talking about his paper, uh, where he's harder to understand because whatever he's doing, I can cut him off and narrate for him. So I didn't find that horribly challenging and it was kind of fun. And the larger point was it was kind of fun becoming sensitive to the sound, people's sounds. There's such variety in the human voice. And if you got a Boston accent and an Australian accent and a thick Eastern European accent, and you've got men and women and little kids and the sounds of their voices is music. And you start to get to the point where when I'm working on a book and interviewing someone, I'm thinking purely the meaning of what they're saying, almost purely the meaning of what they're saying. With the podcast, I got to the point where when I was first get on the phone with someone to see if we were maybe we wanted to talk to them. About the first thing I would be sensitive to was like, how do they sound? Yeah. What's the sound? Never mind the sense. And then you get to the sense. And there were people who I just did not talk to because the sound sucked all the energy out of the room, which is odd. You know, it's, it's different. There's a real kaleidoscopic feeling across the podcast where you're doing three or four stories often in one episode and they're yep. all kind of building. Like, I guess I'm just curious, like how you build that, you know, seven episodes, three or four stories. We're talking about 20 or 30 different strands that are being woven through this story. I'm glad you noticed. Do you like dip into the manila folders? You're like, all right, I'm going to like take some of these out and see if any of these fit the ref theme. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was more, um, I had a long list of things I knew I wanted to get across in the course of seven episodes. And there were some things that, I didn't get across, but the question was, what's the best way to cram all this stuff I want to get across into these seven episodes without repeating myself? And it was sort of like, how many different things can I do in the course of an episode without completely losing the listener? So I, did, it was, I had the feeling of stuffing the thing. Yeah. It felt that way. You didn't do the easiest version of the show no. by any stretch. No, 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 no. No, that's true. And I was playing with a form that I didn't, you know, I've done, I'd done some long form radio. I've done a, some things for This American Life over the years. So it wasn't completely alien to me, but I, I was never in a position of being able to play with the form. If I was doing something with Ira Glass, I was going to do it the way Ira Glass kind of did it. Yeah. And, and it, which is a great way. Yeah. But but I didn't have the liberty to say, well, I'm going to try to reinvent this form or think about how you could play. And, but one of the things that seemed to me, and we will see if people will follow, it seemed to me you can do with the form in a way that you can't do quite as well in print, though I do do in print. It's my tendency, is, is digress, is break away, tell the listener in so many ways, what you just heard is going to be relevant, trust me. We'll come back to it. And trust that they'll hang around as long as you're not boring them before you get back to it. So I assumed that I could get away with that. And I tried to see how much of that I could get away with. And it was a source of not friction, but conversation between me and the producers and editor. It was like, hmm, let's, let's see if this works kind of thing. And we'll see if it works. But it was, it was fun to play with. I had this feeling, you know what it was? I had this feeling that, that in lieu of a conventional narrative, 
there's no, it's no conventional narrative here. There's an idea that I'm playing with, the idea of the assault on the, on the human referee in American life and what implications that has for the fairness of American life. But it's an idea. It's not a narrative. It's not a character. It's not a story. And around that idea, there are essentially seven essays that if they were in print, would feel like a collection of essays. Mm -hmm. But the feeling I had was that the power of the voice it doesn't matter who's always the case, it was my voice, but if one person pulling you through the whole thing was a substitute for a genuine narrative. Not a perfect substitute, but a substitute in a way that the voice on the printed page was not. And that people would feel that the same pull they would feel when they're being pulled through the story by a story. Now, the next, if we do this again, and I don't know if I'm going to do it again, there's a part of me that thinks it'd be fun to see what would happen if you just took a, just a story, one if a, like a book-length story, and try to do it this way. But I thought the nature of this material was it seemed inherently episodic and fragmented. And so it seemed really well-suited to the form because I think the form enables you to glue together a lot of stuff that would be hard to glue together in print. It's interesting that you called it seven essays. To me, it kind of reads as one essay. Uh, in seven parts. Right. And it's unusual on podcasts. Usually you would kind of make those, like if this was This American Life, seven This American Life episodes, they'd be self-contained. But in the case of this story, like that story you tell in the first episode about the warriors mm -hmm. and the way that stars yell at refs and journeymen don't yell at right. refs, that's central to every single episode. Like, it is. It's the prologue to the master essay. Was it difficult, like, taking notes on episode six, where you're like, that was already in episode one? Or so in episode six, we say, they were talking about judges <laughs> and the, the predicament that judges in the American judicial system find themselves in, that you could map a lot of what's happening to them onto the, the situation of basketball referees there's a similar sort of story so i think what you're asking is were they even though even though there's all right seven different episodes about the same essay about the same point was it plotted in any way exactly it was totally plotted so the i thought that starting with the basketball ref set up everything else and it set it up in this way the important thing was this that all right you can show that People are more upset about the referee than they've ever been. You show that, you know, the refs need more bodyguards when they're going back and forth in the hotel. They are receiving end of abuse in the arenas, the new ways. The, the stars are treating them worse than they've ever treated them before. They have this sense of being under assault. You can also show or argue kind of persuasively that there's no way they're anything but better than they used to be. So that completely undermines the argument that the reason they're under assault is that they're worse. Now, if they're just getting worse, maybe that, that would explain everything, right? So you disconnect the assault from their performance. So it's clearly not their problem. It's our problem. <laughs> Something is going on in the culture that's separate from what they're actually, how they're doing their jobs. And that's what this whole story is about. And the sports example is so clean, but open with judges. Even if I could somehow show the judges, which I think they probably are, are better trained, better suited to their jobs, more aware of their biases, more aware of their racial bias, their gender bias, they're more aware that if they, of all the studies that have been done showing all the crazy things judges do, if they're not aware, they do them like sentencing more harshly before lunch than after lunch, all that stuff. I think that the audience mind would have rebelled and said, yeah, but we know judges, we know that there are a million black men in jail. Right. And we know it's not fair because the situation isn't fair. But an NBA basketball game, they have these rules that are pretty clear and it's fair. I mean, the, game, the rules, are everybody agrees on the rules. So it's a cleaner sort of example, easier to get the simple idea across, which can then lead you. Then all of a sudden people are prepared to think about the judges in a different way. So it was plotted. It started with a list of 15 or 20 possible refs to explore, like college admissions officers was on the short list in the, in the, oh, I mean, wow. it, it would have, which, which would have been good and bad because we would have missed this whole, it would have been too late 
I was going to say, story. I always thought that, I thought that the arc of the universe had bent your way because right as this is about to come out, uh, all of the warriors have been like, uh, you have that crazy blow up night where it's Draymond tweets out uh, the name of the ref equals uh, Tim Donaghy. Right. Which is uh, the ref who was caught gam- yeah. gambling on games. Maybe the most vicious assault on a ref in recent memory. Yes. Way. Yes. Last night. Yeah. Last night, Chris Paul went after one of the refs in the Rockets game, and he started to imitate his body language just to mock him on the court. The ref didn't know what to do. I mean, but I just find, I do find it astonishing that the culture has lost that little thing in the head that people used to have, that if someone's attacking the ref, there's something wrong with them, that it's not okay. Um, it's not a good sign. Coaches used to say, and they probably still say it behind closed doors, if you're worried about the referees, you've lost before you got out on the court. You know, they will make mistakes, but that that's not why you win or lose. And if you're looking for other people to blame, not yourself, you're not going to do the things that are required to be as good as you can be at what you're playing. All that, I remember that's what high school coaches used to say. You get in trouble if you yelled at the ump or the ref. And that's just gone to the point where my 11-year-old son can basically be calling a Japanese Buddhist ref in a Japanese Buddhist basketball league an asshole and nobody says anything. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I feel like sports have always been a good topic because it's a place that we acknowledge our own irrational behavior, that being a fan of a team is just a weird, sentimental, irrational thing to do. But I remember a few years ago, the creep of conspiracy into sports, this idea that Oh, well, the NBA wouldn't want the Knicks, you know, they, they would want the Lakers in the finals. So they're clearly pushing buttons down that way. Right. And it was the first time I really saw a significant group of people who I would have thought resistant to conspiracy theory, all more or less accepted that there was some sort of a massive playoff seeding advancement rigging within the NBA and NFL. And there isn't. You're, you're sure. I'm sure there isn't. Yeah. There isn't. The, I mean, I don't know the NFL people, but I have spent time with Adam Silver. I can tell you that his greatest fear is that the process become at all tainted. He assumes that the world's become so transparent that if you were to try to rig something, everybody would find out. And that would be the end of him and the game. It would be a devastating blow. So his whole push is towards transparency. And yet, even so, you're absolutely right. The world is primed to think that something's happening behind a closed door they don't know about. When you, know, you couldn't be more open about the refereeing era than they, they are. I mean, they're like publishing the mistakes the refs make. I mean, if I were trying to contrive to uh, generate outcomes, if I was running the NBA and I wanted, I don't know, the Warriors to face the Knicks in the finals. And I was just, I was going to make that happen. Wow. You're going to need a lot of money. I wouldn't let there be instant replay. Yeah. I would, certainly wouldn't let there be instant replay inside the arenas that all the fans could see on the jumper. I, mean, I wouldn't like analyze the mistakes of the refs. I would, I mean, it just, I wouldn't set, I, you wouldn't set up the system this way. So you're absolutely right that it's kind of what's happened is all the forces that would undermine the authority of a neutral third party are gaining strength. The ability to identify a grievance, you can see the mistakes more easily. The ability to organize people who have all suffered the same grievance. So a group of fans who might have individually suspected that the ref made a mistake now know the ref made a mistake and they can all get together on Facebook or Twitter and start to generate a mob so that, you know, after an NFL playoff game, all of New Orleans walking the streets, refusing to watch the Super Bowl because they're blaming a referee. That was a bad call, though. But, you know, there have been bad calls like that forever, yeah. right? Yeah, sure. You did, but but the I don't remember call, the old ones. Yeah, you don't remember the old ones, and they didn't generate a mob on the street. Yeah, and they didn't they didn't become the sole explanation for why the team failed, hmm. and how that became the sole explanation when Sean Payton could have done six different things in the last two minutes that may, would have made that call. It would never have happened, or or, or things that have happened in the in the first quarter. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons the Saints lost that game. Yeah. But that became the reason, and the ref was to blame. Now, why is that? It's very convenient for all involved to have someone else to blame. The player is no longer taking the blame. The coach is no longer taking the blame. He's a useful fall guy. Essentially, the referee is the guy that has no defense. He's the guy that no, there's no mechanism for defending him. 
And the mechanisms for attacking him are ever more sophisticated. So I think that's kind of the problem. And it's the problem not just with sports referees, but it's a problem with judges. It's the problem with almost anybody who's put in that kind of neutral third party in between two people in a dispute. The thing that occurs to me is, is there a a way that um, the media and journalism has created this situation in a way like most people aren't writing a profile of the referee, they're writing a profile of the superstar player. Like the whole way that we sort of cover people, we cover the stars. unique individual standout stars of the world, and we don't ever cover the people who are regulating, punishing, or in any way controlling their lives. I, I just, I wonder if you could talk about, like generally if you were um, in your position getting assigned stories, you would be writing about Kevin Durant and Draymond, not writing about the ref yeah. that they were yelling at. Right. That's true. I think that it's, so it's, I'd say two things. One is the superstars are ever more superstars. The inequity or inequality on a basketball court, it's odd to put it this way, I know, but it sort of echoes the inequality in the society. That the difference between LeBron and a bench warmer is even bigger than the difference between, I don't know, Larry Bird or Michael Jordan and a bench warmer. And so the making of these of these really powerful rich stars the creation and the the machinery that makes them you know these global franchises with hundreds of millions of dollars of shoe deals and paid extraordinary sums of money and all that that does fuel the pressure on the ref because in a really unequal environment the person who has got power and privilege is going to be really upset with the neutral third party who's administering genuine justice. That person, the privileged person, does not want genuine justice. They want the call to go their way. Always have. And if you actually, as the NBA is doing, actually up the objectivity of refing and remove the ability of the powerful privileged person to influence the ref, you're going to just further inflame the situation. And I think that's what's happened in the NBA right now. To the benefit of like the ordinary guy who comes off the bench, but he's nobody's t nobody's paying attention to him. Uh, he is the beneficiary. LeBron goes up against somebody. LeBron is a little less likely to get the call than he would have a version of a LeBron was fifteen or twenty years ago. So, in that way, I think that maybe the media sort of contributes because it's just a public fixation. The power that that the winners of the games have. I think there's another thing that's like the backdrop to the whole seven episodes. And this is like a broad generalization that I'm willing to be argued out of, but I do think it's kind of true. I think we think less and less of human beings. That, you know, the upmarket version of cynicism towards human judgment is the Kahneman Tversky like stuff. But the social science that shows that even the smartest judge is as systematically stupid about things as the dumbest guy in the street that our brains are wired to make error mistakes and our, our brains are wired for all kinds of bias that we're not aware of and people kind of know that now even if they haven't read Kahneman and Tversky even if they aren't social scientists and the crude version of this is that everybody's prejudiced or bigoted or and it's impossible not to be racist for example and that bleeds into feelings towards neutral third parties who are meant to administer unbiased judgments because nobody believes they can be unbiased anymore. So people are looking for people's biases, people's mistakes in pretty cynical ways. So I think that it's harder to maintain moral authority, harder to maintain that neutral authority that is required for a referee to do his job. And I think you see it over and over and over again. And, that, you know, to me, the, one of the funny insights that fell out of the whole podcast, the whole show, was when I realized there are these exceptions, that there are these refs who, they're doing quite well, you know? There's some refs who are actually getting kind of rich doing yeah. their jobs. Stock exchanges, credit rating agencies, CEO pay consultants. In every case, those were refs that had sold out to one side. They were the genuinely not fair refs. In the genuinely rigged system, 
that's the one place where the refs were were happy, which is troubling, <laughs> right? It's troubling. And it was almost like a little bit of a, a lab science experiment. When I said that, look, isn't it odd that the credit ratings agencies after the financial crisis, they're bought by the Wall Street banks. They're paid by the Wall Street banks to rate the securities that everybody buys. Of course, they're not going to be a, an unbiased referee. Isn't it amazing that they've managed to survive in this age of hostility to referees, that nobody's, there's been no reform of them since the financial crisis? You kind of realize that the reason there's been no reform was because they were paid for by one side, and that side wants them to stay paid. They have a source of support that a genuinely neutral referee doesn't have. We then asked, all right, where is there something really unfair in American life? And is there a referee around that situation who's really happy to be there? And this is where we found CEO pay consultants. Like one thing that's obviously grotesque about what's happened in the American economy is the people who run big corporations have gone from being paid 20 times the, with the average worker in their corporations paid to being paid 400 times without any clear improvement in their performance. And in many cases, the opposite. And it turns out, there's a ref in that situation that didn't exist back when they were paid only 20 times. Uh, and these are these CEO pay consultants. So it was sort of like we had a theory of the case and then went and found the case. And I, we had our material, but I bet you could find other cases like that, that referees being brought in to make things seem fair that are grotesquely unfair. And they're brought in precisely because they're grotesquely unfair. I'm going to try to sum up your whole career of topics here in one uh, one <laughs> fell swoop, which is you're interested in the idea that whenever a system is created, someone's going to try to game that system, either legally in the case of Moneyball or illegally in uh, various financial reporting. What interests you about that essential story and is... 20 years in, is your understanding evolving? Are you finding new things? How do you find new territory under that same so umbrella? So I think, I think your theory fails because I, th <laughs> I, can, I can think of a bunch of books that I can't, yeah. the blind side. You've written a lot of books. It's, the it's hard to fit them. The blind them. side. Yeah. There are a bunch of books that don't quite fit that description. There's one thread of your work that goes if I would, You know, it's funny. For a while, I thought, because it would be nice if there was a single thread that organized my work. And I just... I don't think there probably is, but I thought the closest thing to it was my interest in markets and the way the way value, the yeah. way things got valued. But um, oh, that's that's probably a that one at least covers more overall I think, topics. I think yeah. it covers more overall topics. But I'm not thinking that way when I'm looking for topics. So I'm thinking like, what's the next bead I can put on this string? Yeah, uh, you know, I don't think in that way at all. Um, you know, so I do think that there's some truth that that's like one of those things that just seems to turn up again and again in the books, but it isn't the thing I'm looking for. I'm not looking for a concept. Mm. Uh, it's really is like, I just, it's almost always starts with some person who interests me and who's teaching me about something I don't know about and realizing then that person is quite a wonderful and useful character. And then further realizing that the person is in situations and playing with ideas that are worthy of book-length treatment. So rather than start from 30,000 feet and zoom down, I usually start right in the dirt and zoom out. And the books, many of the books are the result of either chance encounters with people or, or some really simple question that ends up getting lost uh, by the time the book gets done, but that leads me to someone. Moneyball. The question that led to Moneyball didn't even get addressed in Moneyball. It was watching the Oakland A's play in 1999 or 2000. And I heard the announcer say something about someone's new contract. And I went to look at what the play individual players on the A's were. I looked at their payroll and who was paid what. And there was this vast discrepancy between like the left and the right fielder. One was making six million, one was making 150 grand. And I thought, I wondered if there was class resentment within the Oakland A's. I wondered if the right fielder, the guy who wasn't paid so much was pissed off whenever the guy who got paid a lot screwed up. And, but it led then to the next level of inquiry was it, not between the players, but between the teams. 
when the Oakland A's had to play the New York Yankees, who were spending five times as much, were the A's players like really irritated. They had to do the same work for a fifth the pay. And that just then one thing led to another. And then I mean, I, it took me into a territory which led to the book. A lot of the books kind of come around that sort of way. So that it may be there are patterns to what I'm curious about and interested in and that probably create a sense that this is all the body of work from one person. But uh, some of the books don't really fit the description either. How do you embrace that serendipity? How do you not cling to your original idea, but embrace whatever comes in front of you? So one of the reasons I take time off between books is to try to dissuade myself from doing the same thing twice, trying to go the safe way. I think anything you do, if it's going to be any good, there's got to be some risk involved. I think the reader or the listener, whoever, will sense that you were taking chances and it will excite them. So you never want to do the same thing twice and you don't want to cling to something because it's the safe thing. Uh, so I try to keep that in mind. I, I kind of keep in mind that, okay, I started with this, but if I push offshore clinging to this life raft or clinging to this flotation device and I get out way out of range of swimming range of the beach, but I find this more interesting flotation device, have the nerve to jump from one to the next. You never know where it's going to lead. And so Amos Tversky, the psychologist I wrote about in my undoing project, said one of the great mistakes people make is they don't ignore sunk cost. They, they think that because they, because they uh, spent $500 to rent a beach place, even though they have appendicitis and don't want to go, they still got to go. And they're going to be miserable and die of appendicitis in their beach place rather than go to the hospital. It, people do, in silly ways, they keep doing what they're doing because they're invested in it. So I've just tried to make a point, like remind myself, don't just stay with one line of an inquiry. Don't proceed with one way you've structured a book or one way you've thought about a story because you thought about it that way so long. And if you're feeling misgivings about it, honor those feelings because there's something else in your brain telling you to, to stick with something you shouldn't stick with. But it's like one of the great lessons, ignoring sunk cost. Thank you, Michael Lewis. Thank you. The podcast is Against the Rules. Yes. Subscribe in the podcast app. You are listening to this now. Thank you. Thank you. That was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, this show was edited by Janelle Pfeiffer. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Michael Lewis for doing the show. Thanks to our intern, Tyler McCloskey. Thanks to our friends over at Pit Writers and our friends over at MailChimp. They help make this show possible. You can always send us an email, podcast at longform.org. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.